Welcome back to another episode of The Story Of. I'm Reagan Snyder, and I'm really happy you're here. The story that I'm telling today is a true story of abuse and murder. It might be triggering to some. There are a lot of details about physical, verbal, child, and sexual abuse. There's a couple mentions of animal abuse. So, listener discretion is advised. Billy Stafford was born on February 13th, 1941, to his parents Lamont and Winnie Stafford. He was the second child of six. The last one was adopted, and Billy had a nice... It was modest, but it was a nice, comfortable life. His, da- his dad ran a successful junkyard business, and his upbringing was pretty strict. But as he got older and stronger, Billy became abusive towards both of his parents, but he especially aimed his rage and abuse towards his dad. He had friends, but they would recall him as always being very sadistic. For instance, while they were in their teens... Billy kept whipping these strands of guy wire ends across his friend Alfie's legs, and Alfie told him to stop, and he just wouldn't, until Alfie finally took a piece of metal and hit him with it. Billy grew into adulthood to become a fairly big guy. He was a little over six feet tall, he was big and burly, he weighed over 250 pounds, he had this mustache, and he wore his light brown receding hair hair slicked back. He had tattoos on both of his forearms and people would just generally go out of their way to avoid him. He was he was really hot and cold in his temper. He would be fined one minute and completely flying off the handle and swinging at somebody the next. He was totally unpredictable. In 1962, when Billy was 21, he got married to Pauline Oikel. What a last name. If you're listening and your last name is Oikel, message me because I want to be your friend. Anyway, Pauline and Billy got married because he knocked Pauline up. They moved into a small two-bedroom apartment. And, of course, Billy was beating her. I don't know the timeline there, but I am sure the abuse started shortly after they got married. I'm sure he put on a great face and then once they were married, his true colors came out. When they moved from their apartment, they went and lived with Pauline's mom at her house, but the abuse continued. He would hit her with anything within reach. There, you know, beer bottles, broom handles. Sometimes he'd just hit her with his fists. Poor Pauline was so scared of him. So in trying to keep the peace, she would just stay quiet unless she was spoken to. And he was even beating the kids, which is something that I can't even begin to fathom. It's hard for me. I like, I can't go there, but Pauline was always compliant to Billy because she was just terrified of him and she didn't want to set him off. During their marriage, they had five children together and Pauline kept getting pregnant because he wouldn't allow her to take birth control or any preventative measures at all. There was one night while she was pregnant with her third child that he beat her up pretty bad He had been drinking, and he went after Pauline. He punched her in the face until she was bloody, severely bruised, and she finally was able to duck out of his grasp and and 
she just ran into the snow wearing her nightgown and slippers and over to her uncle's house, who, thank goodness, lived close by. And I think she was just in, in total shock by the time she got there. She was taken to the hospital. He had kicked her. Billy had kicked her so badly that doctors thought she was going to lose her baby. But luckily, she didn't. Using pictures to prove the assault, Pauline pressed charges against Billy. But she later dropped the charges when Billy's father assured her that Billy had signed a peace bond stating that he would never beat her again. Guess how well that went over. The agreement lasted for a whole two weeks, and then Billy started beating Pauline again. And they got worse each time. There was one time that he even tried to drown her by pushing her head down into a bucket of water while, while choking her simultaneously into unconsciousness. And luckily, Pauline's grandma came in at the right time and saw what was happening and was somehow able to pull Billy off of her. Some of the beatings resulted in scars from her from him biting her. And Pauline and the kids were being beaten so regularly that it just became part of their life. They just expected that it would happen. And it got to the point that it didn't matter if Billy was drunk or sober. He was just highly abusive. So Pauline said that he would get really, when he got mad and abusive like this, he got really wild looking. He would glare, spit would be flying out of his mouth and frothing at his mouth. I mean, he was like an animal. He would be nice one minute and then the next he'd be throwing a beating down for no reason. She says that he never treated their children with love at all. Instead, he started beating them when they were about six months old. That makes me sick. These poor babies wouldn't even cry after they'd be put into their crib like a normal baby because they knew that he would come and beat them in their cribs if they did. That's sick. When they got a little bit older, he forced them to smoke cigarettes and then eat the butts. Why? There was one time that... Actually, I don't know if it was one time. I just know that he would force one of his daughters, her name was Elizabeth... To stand against the wall while Billy threw knives at her to see how close he could get to her without actually hitting her. He would force her to sit on the back porch alone at night, and that led to a really deep fear of the dark for Elizabeth. Whenever he would come home, the kids would just sit there. They would sit there, and they would not move, and they would just pray that they wouldn't set their dad off. They were terrified of their dad. There's just a special, brutal place in hell for people who hurt children. That's just unforgivable to me. So Pauline obviously wanted out and away from this sick guy, but she had nowhere to go. And it wasn't until her cousin came for a visit from out of town that things changed for her. She hadn't seen this cousin in like 15 years, but the cousin knew right away what was going on in that household and so she sat Pauline down privately and she told her that she was welcome to come stay with her if she wanted to leave Billy. And there was one morning after the cousin had left that Pauline looked out the window to see Billy beating their youngest daughter, Darlene, with part of a wooden rocker, it, rocking chair. It was the rocker part. And I mean, <laughs> she was a little girl and he's using this hard piece of wood to beat his little girl with. She was lying face down on the ground. Billy had his foot on her back and he 
beat her until she soiled her undies. This poor baby. I'm not sure how old she was, but she was a kid. Of course, upon seeing this, Pauline is horrified, but she has to put on a face so that she can avoid more violence. So she kisses him goodbye. He leaves to go to work on his fishing boat for two weeks. This is when Pauline took the opportunity to get herself and her kids the heck out of there while Billy was gone. And when he came home to his family gone, he was enraged. You can imagine somebody like that, what he must have been doing. He was enraged to the point that he beat Pauline's mom while just to try to figure out where they had gone. She must have not cracked, though, because a year goes by and Pauline decides to make a visit back home to Nova Scotia and Billy is begging her to come back to him. And I'm sure he's very manipulative and very, you know, a smooth talker. A lot of times they are. So she told him that she'd think about it. And when she went back home to where she was living with her cousin, her cousin was able to talk her out of going back to him. And she went right out and got started on a divorce. Pauline ended up staying in this hellish marriage for six years before she was finally divorced from this monster on grounds of of cruelty. And then in 1971, Billy was living with a woman named Faith Hat. They never got married, but their relationship would last for about two years. At first, he treated Faith well. She never saw any part of his dark side, but that wouldn't last long, and soon she became a victim to his common, unprovoked beatings. Faith knew she wanted out of the relationship, but then she found out that she was pregnant. One night, while, Bo- while Billy was heavily drinking, he kept verbally harassing Faith. He was trying to catch her in a lie, and Faith had no idea what he was talking about or what he was getting at. And this eventually, all this verbal harassment turned into a physical attack on Faith. He grabbed her and he started choking her. And she thinks that he would have killed her if he hadn't been so drunk because she was able to break free of him and he chased her down the street, but she made it over to a neighbor's house before he could catch up to her and she stayed the night there. And then the next day she was like, I just, I'm leaving. I have to just leave town. And she she began plans to move out of Calgary where they were. She has their baby. Seven years go by. She comes back to arrange to move back to town. She was staying with her sister while she was trying to find an apartment for herself and Rodney, her son. And one day while she was out apartment hunting, guess who pulls up next to her? It was Billy in his truck. And he told her that he wanted to see his son. And Faith, of course, is very hesitant. She didn't want him to, and for good reason. But in trying to keep the peace, since she was moving back into town and would probably run into Billy here and there, she did let him see Rodney once. By the time Billy was 33 years old, he had two failed relationships and six children. He didn't pay child support. He didn't have relationship a relationship with any of them. He was just, you know, your run-of-the-mill, dusty, old, deadbeat dad. People knew about Billy, too. Law enforcement knew the kind of crap that he was up to. The town knew him as a nasty bully, and a lot of people were afraid of him. 
One of these people was a 20-year-old fisherman named Jimmy LeBlanc, and he was known to be a happy-go-lucky kid. He loved hunting. He loved nature. He was close with his family. But while on a fishing trip, he died under mysterious circumstances in the winter of 1974. And Billy happened to be on that same boat on that same trip. Suspicious. Years after Jimmy died, Billy bragged to somebody that after an argument with Jimmy, Jimmy went to the galley to make some tea and Billy grabbed Jimmy from behind and threw him overboard. He was bragging about it. It's weird, dude. So if you haven't gathered it by this point, Billy is a nasty, hellish person who serves no purpose. Now let's talk about Jane Hirschman. Jane Hirschman was born on January 25th, 1949 to Gladys and Maurice Hirschman. She was their second child and she would go on to be one of four kids total. She grew up in a large house, but it had no bathroom or running water, and her dad worked nearby at a sawmill, and he would carry wood on his back on his trek home every night during the cold months to warm the house up. He would go, Maurice, her dad, would go on to join the Canadian Army, which would have them moving around quite a bit while he was with the Army. Things seemed to be all fine and dandy with the family, but when Jane was five years old, things shifted. She started to witness her dad in a whole new light. After going to a movie one night, there were cops waiting outside to arrest her dad for fighting in a restaurant. And he started to fight with the cops. And poor Jane, five-year-old Jane, is there watching all this. And she's scared and she's confused because she, was, she wasn't sure who was hurting who. All they knew is they were taking her dad away. And then in, the, in May of 1954, Maurice was transferred with the army to Nova Scotia, where they lived on base. They had a nice home. It had a big backyard. And during this time, Maurice started to drink more, and that made him mean and irritable and unpredictable. And so the physical abuse followed suit. He began to beat his wife, and although he never physically abused the kids, he was very strict with them, and he was kind of mean to them. And the kids witnessed the abuse against their mom at the hands of their dad. That's a form of abuse in, in and of itself. There was one day that Jane's parents had bought her a new blue dress with these white knee-high stockings. She was very excited because, because her clothes usually came secondhand and they were old. That night, she was sitting at the base of the stairs listening to her parents fight, and she forgot about the stockings. She accidentally left them out of place, and when her dad saw them, he took them and he burned them, and he blamed Jane for not putting them away. So things at home are pretty rough for Jane. But then she started school and she loved it. It, it became like an escape. She loved to learn, and she especially loved earning praise from her teacher. When she was in first grade, she would stay after the bell rang to clean off the chalkboards and brushes, which is something that she, she was common for her. She liked to do it. And on one particular day, though, there were these Christmas cards laying on the teacher's desk, and Jane saw them, and she thought, oh, 
why don't I decorate with these? I think my teacher and my classmates would love it. So she found a bottle of glue and she stuck the cards up onto the blackboard. Keep in mind, she's in first grade. The teacher didn't love it. Instead, when she saw it, she asked whoever put the cards up to come to the front of the classroom. So Jane steps up and her teacher, without explaining why, whipped her in front of her whole class. She never told her parents about it, but she just made the decision to never do anything that might get her a punishment again. She would go on to have that same teacher for three years, and for these three years, she found herself trying to please that teacher and make up for doing something wrong that she didn't understand. She stopped volunteering after school. She became very withdrawn, and saddest of all, she stopped trusting people at a really young age. Jane's family was transferred again in 1957 to to New Brunswick. They moved into a three-bedroom brick bungalow. That's a lot of bees. But her mom filled with plants, and she kept very clean. Sounds like a nice home. Jane's new school was an army school, and she loved it. She learned that she loved to read, and she liked studying French. Another army family had just moved in next door, and their daughter Valerie and Jane would become best friends. Jane found the fact that Valerie's parents didn't fight they didn't smoke or drink, very unique, and she loved visiting them at their house. Meanwhile, over at Jane's house, things were the very opposite. There was lots of contention, a lot of violence, alcohol, it was loud, and her dad would hold these poker games throughout the night with his buddies. There was one particular night that was imprinted into her memory. The night started off great, Her parents were dressed up in their best clothes, they were going to this dance, and they were getting along great. When they came home that night, though, they were fighting. Her dad was swearing loudly as as they came into the house, and he ripped her mom's dress. He pushed her onto the floor, and he was swearing at her and hitting her. And he didn't care that the kids were trying to sleep. He didn't care if they heard or saw. And when the kids did obviously wake up, Maurice turned and swore at them too, telling them to go back to bed. That's, that's pretty damaging, I think. One day after school, Jane came home to see a military police van in their front yard, taking her dad away for hitting an officer. So all of this is traumatic in general, but imagine seeing it when you're that young. It's scary and it's, and it's confusing. Your parents are supposed to be your refuge. Yet you're, here your dad is being taken away for doing something bad. And even though that meant peace in the house, it's still the loss of her dad. I mean, there really is no winning here. And then shortly after that, her best friend slash safe place Valerie and her family moved away. And then Jane and her family moved to Germany, which is actually where Valerie was. And they luckily ended up staying in the same apartment complex. They would go on to stay in Germany for three and a half years. So Jane did grades seven through nine there. And she was good at school. She got into volleyball. Her favorite sport was cross country. And she won several ribbons and medals in that. She became fluent in German, and as she and Valerie grew, they remained inseparable. They were best friends. 
Valerie would actually go on to be a good friend to Jane for the rest of her life. When Jane was 14, she got a job at a salon washing people's hair and sweeping, just little side jobs in the salon. And one day she asked to be all made up. And the girls at the salon, oh, they, they, you know, they love making people up. So they made Jane up, did her hair, her makeup. And when Jane went home, she was just looking in the mirror and admiring how pretty she thought she looked. And all her dad could say to her was, quote, you made up whore, get in that bathroom and wash that off your face and comb your hair, unquote. This was one of those moments that just really left such an impression on her that she rarely wore makeup all the way into her 20s and 30s because of it. Another experience that left a major impact on her is when she came home from school one afternoon and she heard her dad shouting. So she peeks through the mail slot because she's like, oh, I don't know if I want to walk in there. He, he was drunk and he puked and he was yelling at her mom to clean up the mess. So Jane's like, I'm just not even going to go inside. She just sat outside on the steps praying that things would get better because her home life sucked and it was all her dad's fault. So while she's sitting on the steps outside, Maurice stumbles out of the house and looks at Jane, his very own daughter, and tells her that he hates her. Her mom didn't really outwardly express it, but Jane knew that she loved her and her siblings. Her, her mom, Gladys, had a strong belief in God, and she would take the kids to church. Jane said that she felt certain that God always had a special angel watching over her mother. Then one day, something scary happened to their mom. She had this near-death experience due to a tubal pregnancy. She was laying in bed. Maurice came home to find her bed sheets just soaked in blood. And this was the first time that Jane ever heard her dad pray. After her mom went through that, she ended up being okay. Jane noticed that her dad never abused her mom again. He just needed a good scare and the family was transferred again, this time to Canada, and Jane was having a really hard time. Her home life sucked, and she had to leave her boyfriend, Joe, back in Germany. At that time, she felt he was the only person who really loved her, and she had to leave him behind. And they wrote and called a couple times, but they ended up losing touch. He just stopped writing her. She was going to a public school now, off base, and she was having trouble making friends, and on top of that, her report card showed that she failed, which was not something that she'd ever done in school. So all facets of life are kind of sucking for Jane right now, because school is always kind of her safe haven. But then an opportunity to leave came. Some friends of her parents were being transferred to Nova Scotia, and she wanted to go with them. And her parents said, okay, you can go for the summer. At, le at least, it was at least the summer that she was going to be able to go. But when her dad took her to the train station to send her on her way, she knew deep down that she was never going to live there again. Her trip was spent looking after the couple that she went with, looking after, after their two young son sons while they drank and they fought with one another. So really, she was leaving one crap hole for another. When they got there, Jane spent a couple days with them, but it was just, you know, the same 
stuff she was used to at home. The husband was an alcoholic who beat his wife. And when she finally made it out of there, she went to her grandma Mildred Hirschman's house over in Liverpool. And she felt like she was in a safe place when she finally got there. Probably for, I mean, the first time since she was about five, right? Her grandmother, who she called Grandma Mill, lived in a big house in Liverpool. And there was a lot for a kid to do to have fun outside there. Grandma Mill worked at a nursing home during the evenings, and she lived with a fisherman named George Wynott, who felt like more of a grandpa to her than, than her actual grandpa. Grandma Mill loved to bake and cook, and she seemed to run a just a nice, comfortable household. Jane's uncle James also lived there with his wife and his son, or their son, and he would have his fishing and drinking buddies over to the house a lot. At one of these parties, Jane met Milford. Why not? He went as Milfy. She was 15 and he was 24, but he reminded her of Joe, her German boyfriend. And that was a good sign. So Milfy and Jane started dating and he was everything that she was not used to. He had a good job and he and his friends drank, but it was a different kind of drinking. They were happy. They were having a good time. There was no yelling or fighting. Milfy was very mellow, and he'd been raised by his grandparents, who were very good to him. His grandma was very maternal, and Jane got along with her really well. Because his grandfather had quit drinking in, in previous years, they didn't allow drinking in their house at all, which Jane says was a form of security for her. Overall, she just really loved being there. For some reason, though, Grandma Mill didn't like that Jane was seeing Milfy, and she threatened to tell her parents that she was being bad and that she didn't want her there anymore if she continued to see him. But she was not about to break up with Milfy. She was so happy. And Grandma Mill discovered this by reading Jane's diary. Invasion of privacy, Grandma Mill. She found Grandma Mill trying to get in touch with her parents, and she went back to her room, packed up her things, and waited till morning when she could go. Luckily, her maternal grandparents lived nearby, so she showed up at their house. She told them what happened, and they were poor. They lived in a small house. They didn't have a bathroom or running water. There were five kids there, but they took her in. They were happy to take her in. And things were good with her grandparents. They didn't mind that she dated Milfy. But they did enforce a curfew of 10 p.m. on school nights, which is fair. Then one day, Jane got a letter from her mom telling her that Joe had come to visit her. He'd been hospitalized after a motorcycle accident, and that's why he stopped writing suddenly. But Jane was in this new relationship with Milfy. She was really happy with him, and she just never wanted to go back to Winnipeg, where she came from, ever again. So that's... That was kind of the last of Joe. For some reason, Grandma Mill turned vindictive towards Jane. She told a bunch of lies to her parents about her relationship with Milfy, and her mom wrote her telling her that she wanted her to come home. But Jane cleared up the stories that Grandma Mill had told with her mom, and she told her that she wasn't coming home. She never planned on coming home ever again. Just after Jane's 16th birthday, she learned that she was pregnant with Milfy's baby. So when she told him, he asked her to marry him. For the first time since leaving, Jane called her mom. And she called her to tell her that she was pregnant and that they were going to get married. 
And then they told Milfi's grandparents, and everyone seemed to be in support of the pregnancy and marriage plans, but Milfi's grandparents and Jane's parents ended up not coming to the wedding. The wedding was small. It was at their minister's house, and Milfi's friends threw, threw them a small reception in their apartment. And Milfi and Jane moved in with his grandparents. Jane, at, what, 16, 17, settled into a pretty boring life. She didn't even have chores to do. His grandma took care of everything, <laughs> including making Milfi, her husband, breakfast and lunches for work. So Jane was pretty bored. She started to feel like she was just there as a convenience for Milfi whenever he wanted sex. And as she got further along in her pregnancy, Milfi ignored her more and more, and he would go out without her. When she asked where he was going or where he had been, he would tell her that it was none of her business. When Jane finally went into labor, Milfi was out doing who knows what, and she had no way of getting a hold of him. So she ended up delivering their son alone, who she named Alan. And when she called home, to tell him that his son was here, his grandma answered and said that she didn't want to wake Milfi up. So Jane was like, okay, well, can you just tell him to bring a suitcase when he comes to see his son? So he got to the hospital that night. He left the suitcase with the nursing station and he told the nurses to let Jane know that he had a cult so he couldn't come see them. Poor Jane had no visitors this whole time she was in the hospital with her new baby, including her own husband. Jane was largely ignored by the people in her life, but at this point it really didn't matter to her because she had her baby now. When the baby was six months old, Jane got a job at a grocery store and she worked a lot. She worked Monday through Saturday. She would work I think it was like 9 to 5, Monday through Thursday and Saturday, and then Fridays were like 12-hour days. And she made 29 whopping dollars a week, and Milfi's grandparents would babysit. Milfi ended up building a small two-bedroom home on some property that they had, and she stopped working so that she could be a, a mom and spend more time with the baby. And life was monotonous. They fell into this routine of life that so many people do, but Milfi started drinking more and he started to physically abuse Jane. In June of 1971, Jane wanted to go take her son to visit her parents in Ontario and Milfi didn't want to go. So she went without, without her, or I'm sorry, without him. And when when Jane came home, she got a letter from somebody. It was this envelope. It wasn't even a letter, really. It was an envelope, and it had a picture of a naked woman. It was cut up into pieces like a puzzle, but the face was missing. And the the note said, quote, guess what Milfi was doing while you were away, unquote. So Jane asks Milfi about this, and he says he brushes it off and says he doesn't know anything about it. In January of 1972, Jane decided that she wanted to take a, a typing course. And Melfi wasn't working at this time. He had this nasty cycle of drinking where he would get drunk, he would sober up, get sick, get drunk again, and this cycle ended up losing him his job. 
So they were living on unemployment and $50 a week from this typing course that she was taking. Soon after this, she was pregnant again and Jane figured out that Milfi was still seeing whoever that woman in the jigsaw picture was that she got in the mail. There was one night after school that Milfi was supposed to pick her up at 10.30 p.m. and he just never showed up. She was really pregnant. She was 30 miles from home and she had no way of getting home. The Uber wasn't a thing. Cell phones weren't a thing. She was screwed. So she's like, I guess I'm walking. So she starts walking and about 10 miles into her walk, this car stops by her. It's a car full of young guys and luckily they were nice guys. They offered her a ride. She accepted and they took her right to the front door of her house. When she got home, the house was empty. Alan, the baby, was next door at Milfi's brother's house. And when she went over there, they told Jane that Milfi was in jail for a DUI after seeing his mistress. Perfect. Sounds like the best news to get after a long day of typing class. When Alan was seven, his little brother, Jamie, was born. It was October of 1972, and Jane was ready to leave Milfi. But here she was with this new baby. She felt like she needed to stay and try to make it work. In 1976, when Jamie was three, Jane was done. She was done trying to make it work. Milfi came home drunk, and Jane gave him an ultimatum. It was us or the bottle. So Milfi picks up his bottle of rum and kisses it and looks at Jane and says, I guess you lose. So Jane went straight to the bedroom. She threw her clothes and her kids' clothes into trash bags, loaded them up into the car, put the kids in the car, and left to go to her parents' house. It was snowing really bad. They're, they're, they were in the middle of nowhere, and their car breaks down, of course. Can't just ever be easy on these poor women. So this was the 70s. So that, right, there are no cell phones. Her parents didn't know she was coming and Milfi would be too drunk to care. So she has to make a decision. What's the safest thing to do here? What's the best decision? So she threw some clothes over the boys to keep them warm. And she told them to stay in the car while she figured out where to go for help. So she leaves the car leaves the boys in there. She walks until she finds this house and she knocks on the door and this little elderly couple answered. She explained to them what was going on and that her kids were still in the car. So the man threw his coat on. He went out, he brought the kids back and they were, they, they were so cold that the milk in Jamie's bottle had frozen. This sweet couple allowed them to stay the night. And the next morning, the man helped Jane get her car up and running. And Jane knew that she had a difficult road ahead of her, but she was determined that she would never go back to Milfi. Obviously, there were things to work out. They had kids together. They were married. So after staying with her parents for a few days, she went back to figure out arrangements with Milfi. Alan, the oldest son, wanted to finish the school year out at his school with his dad. And Jamie went to live with Jane with some friends. She really didn't expect or even ask Milfi for anything. Instead, she just went right to the welfare office and they couldn't do anything to help her unless she was separated or divorced. And she knew that she wanted a divorce. There was no reason to just separate. 
So she left Jamie with the secretary while she went back to see the lawyer. And when she came back, Melfi had taken him and her hands were tied. There was nothing she she could do because at this point, Melfi had access and rights to his kid. She went over to Milfie's sister's house and she's pounding on the door. She can hear Jamie calling for her, but nobody's answering. How torturous. This poor lady. The lawyer told her that Milfie didn't want a divorce and that as far as he could tell, she didn't have grounds for one. So she's stuck. She's at a total stop, but she is determined to do whatever it takes to divorce this guy and get her babies back. So she hatches a plan. She goes to a doctor. She gets prescribed some birth control. And it wasn't because she needed them with Milfie. He'd had a vasectomy. And obviously she's trying to get away from him. It was to aid her in giving Milfie grounds for divorce because she was going to have an affair. The affair was a casual with a casual friend of Milfie's named Billy Stafford. By January of 1976, they were living together, and then in May, after 10 years with Milfi, Jane was finally granted a divorce from him. I'm sure she felt great cutting ties from him. Jane was hopeful for her future. Billy was her knight in shining armor. He treated her well. He promised that he would always protect her and that she won't be hurt anymore. The first few months with Billy were great. He was charming, attentive. He was everything that Milfi wasn't. She felt a sense of security and safety, but she was still in a custody battle with Milfi. And Milfi was grooming the kids to hate their mom because he's a great dad. He would keep them from her as punishment for leaving him. Life with Billy was very busy and social, and it just was so much different than it was with Milfi. There was one day that Jane got into a car accident in Billy's car And he handled it very well. So different than Milfie would have. He told her that he could always get another car, but he could never get another Jane. He would give her gifts. There was one time that he went out and he came home with a dozen roses and a pair of earrings with her birthstone. They got along really well. Things were good. They moved into an old vacant house for $25 a month, which Jane fixed up and decorated nicely while Billy was out on a fishing trip. One day, Billy had found her birth control pills, and it led to a conversation about Billy wanting a baby. So he threw them in the garbage after a conversation about it, and each month that she got her period, she was relieved. So really, she was just trying to make Billy happy because she had been advised by doctors to not have any more children. But in August of 1976, her wishing and luck ran out. And she found herself pregnant. She did want the baby, but she was worried what would happen to her and the baby because it was against what doctors had advised her. Throughout her pregnancy, she started to notice this gradual shift in Billy's attitude toward her. They never discussed marriage, but Jane took his last name. She became Jane Stafford and Billy's true colors started to show. There were colors that Jane had no idea existed. This man who promised to protect her became very threatening. He was verbally abusive. He called her things like a pig as her, as her belly grew with the pregnancy. And he told her that he wouldn't take her anywhere. 
until she had the baby because he didn't like how she looked. On May 20th, 1977, she gave birth to her third child, which was another boy named Darren. And because she had hemorrhaged with this baby and the last baby, the doctors advised her to have her tubes tied within the next couple of months. So she did. And the day following the operation, Billy came home from a fishing trip and he didn't visit her until the following day. And when he did, he verbally attacked her. When Jane called Billy to come pick her up from the hospital, he was in a mood. She told him that the doctors told her to not do any lifting or strenuous work because she had stitches in and asked if she and the baby could stay with his mom for the next two weeks while he was out at sea, to which he replied, quote, to hell with that idea, old woman. It was you who agreed to that operation, not me. So you just get your ass home and get back keeping house and looking after that bastard you got there in your arms, unquote. She kept her mouth shut on the drive home. And when she walked through the door, the house was a complete mess. Booze bottles and cigarettes everywhere. Dirty dishes, overflowing ashtrays, sticky floors. It was disgusting. The bedroom was disgusting. Billy had gotten drunk at some point and puked on the bed and the floor and didn't bother to clean it up. Instead, he just looked at Jane and said, quote, what the hell are you waiting for? Can't you see all the work needs doing around here? Put that little bastard in the crib and get busy, unquote. There was no running water in the house. It all came from a well. So when Jane asked Billy to help her by getting a couple of buckets of water so she could do the dishes and laundry, she was met with more horrendous verbal abuse from him. At this point, she saw no arguing with him. So just days after surgery, stitches and all, Jane spent the day cleaning, cooking, caring for their newborn, and she didn't finish until 10 p.m. where she found Billy asleep in bed. Jane tried to confide in Billy's parents, but his mom said to just give him a break. He was just adjusting to all the changes. After a trip out to sea, Jane had just gotten her stitches out, and she was told to avoid intercourse for a little while, but Billy didn't care. He made her go into the room and undress, and when he saw her, he criticized her and her body. He called her a mess. He made mean comments about her scars and her stretch marks, and then he basically raped her. Less than a month after bringing Darren home from the hospital, their landlord ordered them to move out so that her mother could move in. And luckily, a longtime friend of Billy's named Stan and his wife, Margaret, found out that they were losing their home, and they offered them a piece of their land free of charge, which Billy bought and put a cabin on for, for a thousand dollars. During the interim, they lived with Billy's parents and they, they were nice people. Jane liked them. And then Jane and Billy moved into their new cabin in the August, in August of 1977. And Billy had put the cabin in Jane's name due to tax issues. Jane started to work at an old folks home and it was nice to have some freedom and to have her own money, but Billy would steal that money from her purse. When she confronted him, he flew off the handle. In just 18 months, Billy went from this kind and loving partner to a verbally abusive, nasty one. It wasn't much longer after that, though, that Jane found out what he was actually capable of. In November of 1977, just a couple months later, after moving into their cabin, Jane went out for the day with Darren, the baby. 
When she had left, Billy was working on installing some kitchen cabinets with his friend Richard, who was helping him. Jane decided to just pick up some KFC to feed the family so that she wouldn't be in the way trying to cook dinner while they were in the kitchen trying to put these cabinets in. It was this night that Billy first laid hands on her. After Richard was gone and Darren was in bed, Jane went outside just to take in the nice night. It was a nice night. She's getting some fresh air. And Billy comes out. He grabs Jane by her hair, pulls her into the house, and accuses her of flirting with Richard, calling her terrible names and telling her that she bought that chicken to impress him. What? These dudes have no logic. So when Jane didn't know how to respond, I'm sure she's just shocked. Billy slapped her and punched her in the face and then started kicking her. Of course, the next morning he apologized and he promised he would never do it again. And Jane found herself questioning if she did do what Bill accused her of. She was going over the events in her mind and she was like, did I look at Richard a certain way? Did did I did I do what he's he saying I, I did? I mean, she thought that people didn't get angry or violent without a reason. And so she must have done something wrong and that his outburst was all her fault. Every time after that situation with Richard, if a man was in their house, Billy accused her of cheating and beat her. So she learned at that point to just stay in her bedroom if there was going to be a, a male visitor. But it never changed the outcome. Around this time, Billy was blacklisted from Nova Scotia fishing boats for beating up the first mate on the boat and threatening him with a knife. He ended up being served, and Billy slammed the door in their faces. While they were walking back to their car, Billy grabbed his fully loaded automatic rifle and pointed it at one of the guys so that they had to duck and back their way out of the driveway. He resisted. Billy hated the law. He resisted it. He would get set off anytime he broke the law and had to pay the piper. And he was known to love guns and hunt deer off season. Sometimes he exceeded his quota and w- and he would hunt without a license. There was one time that he was taken to court over it and he convinced his friend to take the fall for him. And Billy was acquitted. Just a really nice guy. People were afraid of Billy. The charges were dropped and Billy just laughed about the whole thing. From 1977 to 1978, he collected unemployment while Jane worked. He told her that he didn't need to work because she did. And she owed him $3,000 anyway for crashing his car. And that would be something that he never let her live down. So what did Billy do with his days? Nothing. He couldn't even be bothered to take care of his own son while Jane worked. So Jane had to rely on some friends. A retired couple named Marie and Morton Jowdry to look after Darren while she worked. They became very close friends, and Darren had a special bond with Morton. Darren always included Morton in his nighttime prayers, and he called Morton Daddy and Marie Mommy Marie. But sadly, Morton got cancer and passed away in 1984, and when this happened, Darren cried for two days straight. Darren was also very close with Marie and Morton's adopted son. They were like brothers. Jane says in retrospect that she's grateful that Darren spent his days in a more normal and loving setting than he would have if his dad was watching him. And he was happy to spend his days at Marie and Morton's. He was scared of Billy. Billy abused Darren. Darren, his very own son, from the time he was six months old. 
He tried to teach him to be tough, that men don't cry, that sort of thing. Billy also liked to shoot guns at Jane. One day, Jane was putting wood in the stove when he shot her just above her head from the bed. He was laying on the bed and had a direct line of sight to Jane and shot her just above the head. She's terrified and he's laughing and told her that if he wanted to hit her, he would have. There was one day that Jane was out working in the garden and to get her attention, Billy fired a gun at the ground near her and told her to come in because she had a mess to clean up. She walks in to find her little boy naked on his bed, covered in welts from his neck to his feet because his dad beat him with a mop handle. There is blood and feces all over the floor. Darren was quivering. He was trying to stifle his cries because he wasn't allowed to cry. And Jane just cried. And Billy came over and punched her in the face. Oh, I can, I can hardly, I just can hardly bear the thought of this. In the winter of 78, Billy found a job, but he quit after a month for getting into some kind of trouble He was the type of guy that got into drugs. He came home with a lot of drugs. And he told Jane that his alcoholic friend of 25 years, Ronnie, who was also abusive and left by his wife after their their children, actually, finally convinced their mom to leave their dad. He was, Ronnie was coming to live with them. He lost his house. He had nowhere to go. And Billy would actually abuse Ronnie too. So you've got one abuser abusing another abuser. But Ronnie earned his keep by doing chores, and if he missed something, Billy would beat him. There was one day when Darren was two or three years old that he fell off of his chair reaching for something, and his teeth cut through his lip. Jane and her friend Margaret comforted him. They put an ice pack on his lip, and after an hour, the pain finally subsided, and he was able to go to sleep. When Billy came home, he went straight to Darren, woke him up, When he asked him if he cried over his lip, Darren said yes, and Billy punched him in the face three times, warning him to never cry again. I can barely get these sentences out, but I will just tell you, the book from which this information came from has details of the abuse that Darren endured at the hands of his own dad, and it's disturbing, and it's terrible, and I don't even want to speak more of it into the universe. It's, it's awful. And Jane, if she tried to stand up for her son, Billy would beat her too. There was one occasion when Billy's parents came over for dinner with Kathy, who was Billy's sister and her boyfriend and their two kids. Their mom had made dinner. Jane helped serve up each plate. And for some reason, Billy lost his mind. Nobody knows what set him off, but he went and he got a gun out He smashed the plates, he scraped each plate of food into the garbage, and then he hit Kathy's boyfriend in the head with his gun. It was complete chaos. Kathy was crying, the kids were screaming and crying, and everybody left. In October of 1980, Alan, Jane's first child from her previous marriage with Milfie, he was 15 now, and he came to live with her and Billy. He had been getting into trouble with the law. He was breaking and entering, and he was on probation. And so in March of 1981, Alan got into some more trouble while Billy was out at sea. Jane had to contact the parole officer, and she was terrified of what Billy would do if she found out about it. 
She knew that if Billy found out, he would kill Alan. And she was so stressed that after doing some shopping, she walked right out of the store with her cart full of stuff and found herself being arrested for shoplifting. And that resulted in 50 hours of community work for her and a year of probation. In 1982, she was discharged, and Billy, thankfully, somehow never found out about it. Allen was sent to the school for boys in Shelburne until August of 1981, and when he left, he went to, to live with his dad again. That only lasted a few months before Jane got a call from social services asking if she and Billy would be willing to take Allen in again. And Jane didn't want to because she didn't want him being abused by Billy, but he wasn't getting along with his own dad. And so they she they decided to leave the decision up to Alan. What where do you want to go? Which hell hell hellhole do you want to go to? This was all during the time that Ronnie was living with them, and so Alan ended up coming to stay with his mom and Billy, and Billy treated Alan and Ronnie like slaves. Alan witnessed and experienced the horrible abuse in that house. He watched this man physically and verbally attack his mother and his little brother and even their pets all the time. There was one time that even though Jane's little poodle named Blue was a house dog, he decided to keep her outside and he would just kick her around. He would hold her up by the back of her neck. He would bite her nose. So weird. The family also had a St. Bernard and... That sweet dog turned aggressive towards anyone and everyone because he was so used to the mistreatment by Billy. Billy beat Jane whether he was sober or drunk. He had absolutely isolated her from everyone she knew and loved. She had no control over her job. It was all Billy. Chores, social life, everything was controlled by Billy because she was terrified of him. She didn't want to set him off. Jane hoped and prayed and had faith that it would get better, but it just never did. In fact, it kept getting worse. Billy never contributed to turning their cabin into an actual home. That was all Jane, financially and other otherwise. She did a lot of repairs and remodeling herself with the help of a friend named Dem Dempsey Hat. And Jane worked hard to keep the house nice. And Billy would mess it up on purpose just to bother her, just to cause more work for her. He'd get up several times throughout the night for snacks. He'd bring it into bed. He would eat loudly just to keep Jane awake. He would spit fruit seeds and pits onto the floor around the bedroom. And sometimes he would, he would even pee in the bed and make Jane strip and replace the, sh the sheets. He would sleep all day while she was at work and then try to keep her all night just because. A friend of Billy's said that if you stood up to him, you really wouldn't have trouble with him. But if he knew you were scared of him, he'd make sure to keep it that way. But then when he mixed his drugs with his alcohol, he would rage. There were three nights in a row that he, he brought a dining room table chair into the bedroom and strapped Jane to it with his belt. And then he would load his shotgun and lay down on the bed and point it at her. And Jane had no idea what was going through his head. She didn't know if he was going to shoot her or not. And he would stay up all night just ranting and raving with his gun pointed at his wife until he had to go to work the next morning. And before he unstrapped her, he would pee on her head. And then let's remember Billy's friend, Ronnie, who was living with them. Well, he was abusive too. His wife left him, remember. 
Her name was Andrea. And Andrea and Jane became best friends through this all. They had a lot in common with this. And there was one night that Andrea and Jane were sitting up talking at Billy and Jane's house. And suddenly Billy comes in pointing a gun at Andrea's head, telling her that she should have never left Ronnie. And then he turned it on Jane and started beating her in the face and the head with the gun. He was yelling at her to not even think about leaving him. And then he grabbed both the women by the neck and told Andrea to get out or he'd blow her head off. So she's gone, running out the door. And after she left, Billy continued to beat Jane until she was completely unconscious. And Alan, who's a teenager at this point, hears Billy beating on his mom, but he waited until he knew that Billy was asleep to go check on his mom. She was laying on the kitchen floor and he could not wake her up. He tried pouring water on her face, but she just would not wake up. And Alan was terrified that Billy would see him trying to help his mom. So he just went back to bed, scared that his mom was dead. He had no idea. But Jane did wake up and come out of this unconsciousness and got to the point where she was like, you know what? I can't, I can't live like this anymore. And she told him that she was going to leave him. And he just, his response was to laugh and he threatened to shoot her family one by one. So Jane is in absolute despair. There's no way out. She had reached the depths of depression by this time. She was, oh my gosh, an absolute victim of battered wife syndrome. Battered wife syndrome victims are brainwashed into thinking that attacks on her are her fault. She feels no self-worth and she's too scared of the death threats to leave her abuser. Plus, she has no money and nowhere to go. She's just stuck. And like I said before, everyone knew about Billy Stafford. The law was well aware of some of his antics. They were always prepared when they had to deal with him. He, Billy would drive around with a, a gun in his truck. He would shoot a deer if he saw one, whether or not it was hunting season. And I, I'm not going to get into the type of anim, animal brutality that he was into, but he used and sold drugs. His son said that he always had drugs on him and he was always using. He thought it was funny to drug other people like his friends and his wife. He drove like a maniac. He never obeyed traffic laws. He was always drinking and driving. He hated the police. And a lot of abusive men will keep within the confines of their home and put on a good face for friends and, and the public and just hide the abuse, but not Billy. He was the town bully. He was just the worst. There was strong suspicion and evidence that Billy had shot Marilyn Fisher's dog. I mean, these are just a few people around the community. Marilyn Fisher's dog got shot. She reported Billy. She thought it was Billy. When he got word that she had reported him, he came knocking on her door accused her and her son of reporting him. He was screaming and cursing at her. And when Marilyn's husband learned about this visit, he told Billy that if he ever came near them again, he would kill him. So Billy never bothered him after that. So yeah, it's, you know, stand up to him and he won't bug you. But if he, if he knows that you're scared, he's going to bug you and harass you and abuse you. And there was Marcia Freeman who was taking her new baby for a walk and Billy saw her, so he drove towards her, and he swerved at the last second to miss them. They had been building a house across the street, unfortunately, from Billy, 
and one of the workers left some oil drums overnight, and the next morning they found bullet holes in them and in the house that was under construction. And then there was another time that Jane's cousins, Doug and Victor, were visiting, and suddenly Billy attacked Doug, when Vic- and when Victor asked what was going on, Billy threatened him, and he went over and he slammed his head into the wall, causing a lot of blood. And then he pointed a gun at them and told them to get out of the house. And as they left, they heard a gunshot. Don't know what he shot if he was trying to get them, but they heard a gunshot. Another time, Billy invited this guy named Ivan Higgins and his wife over with their two-year-old daughter, just to hang out with him and a few other people. And they hung out for about an hour. And suddenly Billy was really mad at Ivan. And Ivan had no idea why or what he had said to set Billy off. But Billy punched him right in the mouth. And Ivan was like, screw this, I'm leaving. And a couple of other people that were there had to hold Billy back while Ivan and his family left. A few few days later, Billy apologized to Ivan. And he never had any more personal trouble with Billy. But Ivan just kept his distance from him because what the frick? No, thank you. Jane had been with Billy for five years by this point, and she was still working at this old folks home, and they had promoted her to chef. They asked her if she wanted to attend this cooking workshop. It was all expenses paid, and she really, really wanted to go, but she had to wait to catch Billy in a good mood to ask him. So when she did, she made the mistake of showing her excitement about it, and and he messed with her. Over the next few days, he would tell her yes, then no, then yes, and she finally just told her boss that she couldn't go. So when she came home that night, Billy told her, I know I told you yes this morning, but no, you're not going. And Jane was like, I already told my boss I couldn't go. And he was outraged. Oh, just livid. And he was talking about how she would never outsmart him. He was punching her. He was choking her until she passed out. When she woke up, he was in the bed asleep, and she just remembers thinking how much she absolutely hated him to her core. Obviously, he was a jealous type. Duh. He wouldn't let Jane go anywhere on her own unless it was to work or to run an errand for him, and even then, he kept a time limit on her outing. They never went out together. She wasn't allowed to go to church. She wasn't allowed to have a Bible. She wasn't even allowed to have any pictures of the family hanging in the house. And I am, I'm not going to get into the details of what their intimacy looked like, if it could even be called that. Just know that it was disgusting and degrading, and he sexually tortured his wife in ways that are unimaginable. This, this woman has been through it. And during all of this, Jane felt alone. She, she thought she was alone. People knew a little a bit about what she was dealing with because Billy was not secretive about his abuse. He abused everybody. But it, it was not uncommon for a wife to be beaten on. People just didn't realize to what extent she was being abused. And they didn't realize that she wasn't the only one. It just, I don't know, abuse back then. We still have a long way to go today, but it, it was bad back then in the 70s and 80s. Jane was too scared to go to the police because she knew the way Billy treated them and she and he manipulated people and and people would take the fall for his crimes. So she felt like she didn't 
she couldn't go to the police. And I mean, the, the feminist movement was starting to emerge at this point, but they still had a long way to go. We still have a long way to go. The preservation of a family back then was much more important than the safety of a woman. So when police responded to a domestic dispute and saw no evidence of abuse there, there just wouldn't be any charges pressed. On March 12th, 1982, a guy named Carl Croft got up and started his day to get ready for work. He left his house to take his daily walk to meet his ride for work. And on his walk, he noticed a truck on the side of the road. And he originally thought it belonged to somebody he knew in town named Chester Harlow because it was parked near the turnoff of his long driveway. And as Carl got closer to the truck, he realized that, no, it wasn't Chester's and there was blood all over the door. So his initial thought was that there'd been an accident of some kind. So he looks around and he doesn't see anything else out of place or anything indicated that there was an accident. As he got closer to the truck, he saw somebody in the driver's seat, but their head was gone. Whoever in that car was dead, dead. And I'm sure that Carl was a bit in shock. Just, (laughs) I mean, I would be like, what do I do? What do I do? What do I do? So he ran up to the next door neighbor. His name was John Babin. And he told him about what he'd seen. So together they walked back to the truck to check it out. And John's teenage son, Danny, had committed eight uh, suicide just eight months earlier. So when John saw this person in the truck, that's what his initial thought was. Whoever was sitting there had taken his own life. And neither of the men recognized the car. They had no idea who the person could be. So they headed back to John's place. They called the police. And constables Archie Mason and Archie Doom, love that both their names are Archie, they were woken up when they were called to the scene. So they're still kind of in this sleepy, half-asleep stupor. And from what they understood through their sleepiness was that there was a car accident with possible injuries. So they're rushing to the scene. They radioed for the ambulance to meet them there. And when they pulled up, they realized that they weren't dealing with an accident. This was a shooting with what appeared to be a rifle. There was blood and pieces of this person's head all over the place. When Corporal Howard Pike arrived on the scene, he recognized the truck immediately and he did a license truck or a license check and he verified that it was Billy Stafford. It was determined that Billy had died from a gunshot wound to the head right in front of his left ear and they weren't sure yet if it was a murder or a suicide, so they searched the vehicle. They were not able to find a gun, so they quickly realized that they were working with a murderer, but they had zero suspects. It could have been anyone. Billy was incredibly hated by his community and anybody who knew him. So they started at square one. They went around knocking on neighbors' doors, asking if they'd seen or heard anything unusual the night before. None of them had. While they were doing this, they ran into Billy's wife, Jane. They asked her, when is the last time she saw her husband? And she tells them it was the night before when he left in his truck. After a few more questions, the the police informed her that they found him dead in his truck this morning, and Jane fainted. Police had 10 men on this case investigating the murder of Billy Stafford. They were picking up more and more leads, and those leads led to Jane as 
as the prime suspect. So they got a search warrant for her house, and as they interviewed her, they took note of her demeanor. It was subdued, and she was in a state of remorse. And as she was being interviewed, she stuck to her story that he was into drugs, he has a lot of enemies, and it was probably the mafia who took him out. Meanwhile, people got word that Billy Stafford was dead, and they were out celebrating. Then Corporal Ron Pond came into question... I said that weird. (laughs) Came into question Jane. And while he was trying to get the truth from her, he was also being very sympathetic because he knew stories about Billy. It wasn't until she was able to talk to Billy's dad, Lamont, that she confessed. So what happened was leading up to the night of Billy's death, there were a couple of times that she had woken up in the night and, and loaded the shotgun and put it to his head while he slept, but she could never bring herself to pull the trigger. And truly, the only thing stopping her was the thought of Darren waking up to see what she'd done. She had thought about suicide, but she refused to leave Darren alone with Billy, and she thought that maybe a car accident could take both her and Darren out, but she was like, no, no way, I'm not going to do that to my son. Darren was the only thing keeping her sane and alive at this point. Jane wanted to hire a hitman. That was her solution. And she had a guy in mind. His name was Beverly Taylor. He was a fisherman. And he'd been to the Stafford home before and mentioned drug deals and having a gun, things like that. So Jane thought, hey, maybe this guy can help me. So in the weeks while she was trying to figure out how to approach Beverly... Jane's co-workers noticed the stress. She was losing weight. She was coming to work with bruises. And she finally was like, okay, I'm just going to ask Gail. So she goes to her co-worker, Gail Brewster, to call Beverly and ask him to call Jane at work between 7 and 3 because she needed his help to have something made for Bill's birthday. When she did talk to Beverly, she asked him to visit her at work which was Hillsview Acres, but she didn't specify why. He just knew that there would be money in it for him. So on a Sunday morning after breakfast, Beverly Taylor headed to Hillsview Acres to meet Jane. And when he arrived at the door, the home's assistant matron, Muriel Oliver, answered the door. And Jane told her that he was there for her, and she walked outside into the snow to walk with Beverly to a small room near the back of the home where they could talk privately. She told him that she wanted to hire somebody to kill Billy. She explained what had been going going on, that Billy beat her and their little boy, and that he threatened to kill her parents if she ever le- left him, and that she was just stuck in, in this really bad place. And Beverly could tell that she was desperate. So he asked her, what's in it for me? And Jane offered him Billy's entire life insurance policy. She did not care about the money. She was going to give it all to him. It was $20,000. But Beverly was not interested in killing Billy, but he helped her come up with a plan. He knew that Billy would smuggle drugs back and forth on boats and that, and he thought that maybe they could set him up and have him put away for a couple of years over, over that. But Jane knew that Billy would get himself out of it, like he always did. He always got himself out of it. Somebody always took the fall for him. So Beverly wasn't going to kill Billy, but Jane was determined to get away from him somehow. The day that Jane met her last straw was one like any other, full of abuse. 
He stole money out of her purse right in front of her, threw her clean laundry that she just finished drying out on the line before the rain came into the mud, and he raped her. When she was trying to sleep, she he, he had some music on that was loud, and she gently asked him to turn the music down, to which he responded by beating her with a metal vacuum cleaner hose over and over, leaving bruises up and down her body. Billy forced Jane out one night to be his and Ronnie's designated driver, and she was just despondent at this point. Billy kept yelling on and on about how he was going to burn their neighbor Margaret Jowdry's house down that night because she stood up to him for bullying her, and he planned to dump five gallons of gas that he had gotten that day around her trailer and set it on fire, and then he told Jane that he would deal with Alan, her son, at the same time. After this night of their partying, Jane pulls up to the driveway, driveway, Billy falls asleep, and Jane was not allowed to leave the car until he woke up and gave her permission to. That was a rule in their house. So she sat there, a shell of the person that she once was. Her normally 140-pound body was down to 100 pounds. Her nerves were completely shot, and she just looked distant and haunted. So while she sat there, after five years of living in hell, she decided she was done. She honked the horn, hoping that Alan would come out. He'd been asleep on the couch and he heard the honk, but he just thought it was probably Jane and Billy fighting again. But when he heard it for the second time, he walked outside to see what was going on. And he saw Jane sitting in the truck. It was raining and she had the truck window rolled down. She called to Alan to, or told Alan to get the gun and load it. So he did, and he didn't know what was going on. He just assumed it was Billy who wanted the gun. So after giving his mom the gun, she told him to go back inside. Jane went back over to the truck, put the barrel into the open window, up to Billy's head. She turned her head away, and she pulled the trigger. Alan was inside, unsure of what was happening, but he did hear the gunshot. So he goes outside to find his mom standing there, gun in hand. She instructed Alan to take the gun. Go put it on. He went and he put it on the back porch. He went to get some clean clothes for her and put them in a trash bag. And then she told him to take the gun to Margaret's so that her partner, Roger, could help him get rid of it. Then she told him to call his grandpa and have him meet Jane by the satellite station. Billy had a bullet in his head and Jane just wanted to get the truck away from the house so that Darren wouldn't see anything because he was still so little. She didn't know if Billy was dead. She never looked at him, not once, but there was blood everywhere. And she drove the truck seven miles along River Road while Billy's body was leaning on her. She stopped. She backed into the side of the road at the entrance of the satellite station road. She turned off the car. She grabbed her bag of clean clothes and waited for her parents to pick her up. Meanwhile, Alan and their neighbors, Margaret and Roger, were cleaning up the mess and disposing of evidence, and when Jane's parents picked her up, they had no clue what was going on. She told them to just not ask any questions, just take me back to your trailer, and when she got there, she took a bath. I don't know if they didn't have a shower or what, just soaking in Billy's blood, but she cleaned everything up, and then she asked them to take her home. She had them take a different route back to her house so that they wouldn't drive by this crime scene that she had just created. She had them drop her off a ways from the house and she walked back 
And when she got home, she saw a note from Alan on the table that he was at Margaret and Roger's house. So she went into the house. She flipped the lights on and off several times. That was her signal to Margaret that she needed her. That was something that they'd done for years. And Jane was so shaken up. But Margaret, Alan, and Roger comforted her. Jane obviously didn't sleep that night. She couldn't wrap her head around the fact that Billy was dead. She kept catching herself waiting for his truck to come up the driveway. And the next morning, Jane woke Ronnie up and asked if he knew where Billy was, to which he said no. So she went over to go visit Margaret. And as she was leaving to walk back home, the police came, asked her a few questions. And that's when they told her he was dead and she passed out from exhaustion and relief. She was taking a lot of Valium at this time, and I think between that and just the sheer terror and trauma of it all, her her memory was really hazy and disjointed, but she ended up confessing. When she went home, she collapsed into bed. She was exhausted. When Darren came in, he climbed into bed with her, and she told him that his dad was dead and he wasn't coming back, and he said... quote, he won't hurt us anymore. Is he really gone forever? End quote. And she told him yes. And he hugged his little arms arms around her neck and told her that he was glad and asked her if she was glad. Jane ended up hiring a lawyer and changed her confession because she was afraid of being in prison and away from Darren. So her new story was Alan was the one who shot him in self-defense And after Alan and Jane signed their statement, they were arraigned on first-degree murder charges the next day. Jane was taken to a women's correctional center while police investigated more and determined that she couldn't have been in the truck when Billy was shot. So she agreed to take a lie detector test. And the test concluded that she was lying about who pulled the trigger, to which she said, yes, she was the one. She did it, and she was glad it's over. And they had no idea how bad he was to her. Howard Pike came in and she gave him a full statement. She was let out she was let out of jail after two days on a five thousand dollar bond, and so was Alan. She tried to pull her life together and just find a sense some sense of normalcy. She burned everything of Billy's and she had a lot to grapple with, but after a lot of praying and talking things out with herself, she found a nice feeling of comfort for the first time. Like there was a peace in the house that she'd never experienced before. And she resigned herself the fact that she was probably going to go to prison. She didn't know, but Billy wouldn't be there and prison couldn't be worse than it was with him. Charges against Alan were dropped and Jane was committed to stand trial. Jane's attorney couldn't even believe that she'd go to trial after what she'd dealt with, but Jane had complete faith and trust in him Jane Stafford's trial lasted 18 days. It attracted nationwide attention. They were obviously looking for questions to be answered, but they were also there in support with sympathy for what Jane had been through. After about three weeks of being in the courtroom on trial, the jury found her not guilty after hearing how terrible the abuse that Jane suffered was, and the courtroom clapped when she was acquitted. Her relief was immeasurable, but her attorney recommended that she pack her bags and get out of town because the verdict could possibly be appealed. When Jane got home, she felt a sense of relief and freedom, but she also felt lost and confused. I mean, she hadn't been able to think for herself 
in years. What, what now? What was next? I mean, so much had gone down for this lady and now it was over and she just didn't know what to do next. So she headed to Ontario with her boys to stay with her sister Mona in their small house. The kids were enrolled in school and Jane looked into getting into nursing school, but she wasn't able to get in right away. Things were up in the air for her. She was getting depressed. And then on December 15th, her lawyer lawyer called her to tell her that the Crown had filed an appeal and to be prepared to be served. I think that they were afraid that her acquittal would be giving a license to abused women to kill their husbands. So, like her attorney said, the next day, an officer showed up to serve her, but he expressed his regret. He felt like the whole thing should have ended when she was acquitted. After spending Christmas with her sisters for the first time in 15, I'm sorry, not 15, in 18 years, she moved back to Nova Scotia. And after talking to her attorney, he told her that the appeals process could take a long time and that she should just get on with her life. So she did. And even though she had this huge dark cloud looming over her, she started nursing school and tried to just focus on her life at present. She finally got word that the hearing for the appeal would be on October 20th, 1983. And even though she knew it was coming, now that it was here, it was more real and she was depressed. You can read details on the trial in the book, but in the end, she was sentenced to six months in jail and two years probation, and she was allowed to commute from jail to attend her nursing classes. I can't imagine the relief she must have felt. When her attorney asked her if she wanted wanted to appeal, she just smiled at him and said, quote, Hell no, I don't want you to appeal it. Just let me do my time and put all this behind me forever. I'm so happy it's over. End quote. Jane lived with guilt for what she did for two years until she learned in school in a psychology class about sociopathic behavior. Every symptom listed was what she experienced with Billy. And that gave her some closure. After two months in prison, she ended up being released on parole. As she looked back at the guardhouse, the guard smiled at her and he waved and he pressed the button to open the gate for her and he said, good luck, Jane, be happy. In June of 1984, when she was 35 years old, she graduated as a qualified nursing assistant. She met Anne Keith, who was the executive director of services for sexual assault victims, or SSAV, and Anne helped her process her trauma. After five years of helping her with therapy, Anne referred Jane to a local psychiatrist to advance her healing. Sometimes Jane would talk to the abused women who called into SSAV, and sometimes she spoke on behalf of them at events. Things were finally looking up for Jane. She was gainfully employed, she was helping victims of abuse, and she had brought her family back together when she moved into an apartment with her three boys, Alan, Jamie, and Darren. She resolved the issues she had with her parents. Maurice, her dad, had a lot of guilt, and he was repentant for the abuse that his family suffered at his hands. He was just part of the cycle, but he did end up changing his ways for the better. Jane's parole officer, Wendy Anand, encouraged Jane to speak out about her experience to help others, and she was surprisingly a good public speaker, 
considering that she was speaking on her traumas. In one radio interview in 1987, Jane was asked if she thought that watching her dad's abuse towards her mom had affected her later in life, to which she replied, quote, it was a major factor. Girls seeing that in a home generally become passive and submissive, and that's exactly what I was, with the thought in the back of my head that, you know, someday this might get better. In the meantime, you just sort of put up with it and live with it. It's what my mother did. She put up with it and lived with it and said that someday things would get better. Well, for her, they did. But in my case, and in most cases, it never does. It just goes from bad to worse. You're conditioned to be a victim, vulnerable to this sort of thing. On the male side, it's a learned behavior also, except the male usually comes out the aggressor and the female passive and submissive, end quote. Jane obviously struggled with trusting men, but she met Ken Ackles, who was instantly attracted to her, and they started to date, and ultimately they moved in together with her two youngest boys. He was significantly older than she was, and Jane wasn't sure that she loved him so much as she enjoyed the companionship, and it seemed that Ken was really into her, but he just wasn't super significant in her life and she ended up moving back into her own place and they broke up and then in 1985 she began dating a guy named James Tynes and James moved in James moved in with her and Darren her relationship with James was deeper and more romantic than it was with Ken and they got along well but Jane still had walls up she just never really trusted that James loved her After a few years together, they ended up breaking up, and during her relationship with James, she got, I keep calling him James, James, she really got into helping other women for domestic, or I'm sorry, other women of domestic abuse. There wasn't a ton of help or advocacy for these victims back then at all. So in helping these women, Jane was faced with having to deal with a lot of her own trauma. I'm sure a lot of it was very triggering for her. Billy's dad, Lamont, was angry with her. He said, quote, they lived at my son's room, at my son's getting free room and board. They came to my house two or three times a week, and I made a number of trips to their home at Bangs Falls. For all the physical abuse they were supposed to have taken from my son, I never saw a mark on either of them, end quote. Jane cried after hearing what he had to say. She said, quote, I keep thinking about how his mother and father must have felt, and I could understand how upset all of this must have made them. I didn't wish his family any harm, and I regret any pain I may have caused them, end quote. Margaret Jowdry was also somebody. Remember her, her super close friend, Margaret? She turned against Jane after so many years of helping her. She believed that the man should be the head of the household, and Jane speaking out against spousal abuse was causing more trouble for women at home. Margaret had also told Billy at one point that Jane had him down as low as she could get him, and that he'd have a hard time as long as he lived with her. What on earth, Margaret? You traitor. Jane went back to Margaret's at one point to get some closure, and she said that all those years that they had been apart melted away and it felt like no time had passed at all. Just one of those friendships. But she wanted to ask Margaret why she did and said what she did, but it just didn't matter anymore. 
Jane also had to grapple with the fact that she wasn't able to protect Darren from Billy's abuse. That's a lot of mom guilt right there. In 1988, she attempted suicide. It was while she was still dating James, and she recorded him her suicide message on tape. By the time that he had gotten it he and realized what was happening and what she was saying, he called the police and they found her. She had swallowed a, a, just a whole bunch of sleeping pills, and if they had been there just minutes later, she probably would have died. So she was rescued from her suicide attempt, and then on a night out sometime later, she met a guy named Joel Corkum through her friend Carrie. He was eight years younger than Jane, but they had this instant connection. Uh, Joel was a dad. He became a dad when he was 17, and then he had two more kids with his first wife. He didn't have any contact with those two kids from his marriage because they had been adopted out, but his first child was being raised by his maternal grandparents, who didn't really like Joel. But Joel did have a relationship with his son, and he encouraged Jane to get to know him. At the end of 1990, Joel moved in with Jane and her two youngest boys, and just a couple of months later, they were engaged. The next year, in April of 1991, they bought a small house together, and then on October 10th of that year, Joel and Jane were married in front of a small group of their friends and family, and then they honeymooned on honeymooned on Prince Edward Island in a cottage on the beach. Jane found that whenever they disagreed on something, they talked through it instead of fighting, which was brand new to her, something she was not used to at all, and it was great. But Jane was still struggling with her trauma. There was one night at dinner with her friend Donna that Jane mentioned that she had a friend that Donna also knew, and she wasn't going to say names, but she had cancer, and she wanted to hire somebody to shoot her and another to hide the gun. She thought that being murdered rather than committing suicide would be easy on, on her family to deal with. And Donna was just appalled and haunted by the fact that Jane asked her to be a part of all of this. Even, even if it was just hiding the gun, that was a big ask. And it turns out that it was Jane. She wanted to commit suicide, but lead her family to believe that she had been murdered. Donna was not going to do this, and so Jane just kind of moved on from it. On November 29th, 1991, Jane went to speak publicly on behalf of a city of Dartmouth Task Force on violence against women. It was a powerful speech, and it was to the point, and it left a mark on at least somebody, because a few days after this speech, someone called leaving a threatening message that if Jane didn't stop speaking out on violence against women, he'd shut her up permanently. The next month, in January of 1992, another message threatening to kill Jane came through. And then one day, while she was riding in her car with her family, the car started to vibrate. So they pulled over, and Joel discovered that the lug nuts on both rear wheels had been loosened. And then there was another threat. A threat that was placed in an envelope and put on the windshield of her car. So, fast forward to the next month. It's a cold Saturday morning, February 22nd, 1992. A couple named Roy and Yvonne Klein were an older couple, and they happened upon Jane's car. It was 
in park in this parking lot in front of the water. And as Roy walked closer to the car, just looked out of place, he saw that Jane was slumped over in Joel's blue Ford Tempo, and she was dead. She had been shot in the chest. There was a bullet that pierced through her breastbone and the pericardium, which is the sac around the heart. Uh, it pierced her right lung and her ninth rib. And they really had to investigate because Jane was receiving these death threats, but it also appeared that she had taken her own life. So, you know, who knows for sure? Those who knew her had very, very mixed opinions. Jane's remains were cremated and services were attended by over 100 of her friends and family. I think she was like only 43 years old when she died. So many people turned to her as a mentor that Jane never really had the chance to process and heal from her own trauma. When you live a life like Jane does, that is a lot of trauma to process. And on top of that, she was helping people who had been through the same things that she had been through. And I'm sure she was triggered daily. I mean, I'm sure it was a really, really big struggle for her doing what she did. But what do you think? Do you think somebody wanted to shut Jane up? Do you think she took her own life? I, I've always been aware of domestic abuse. It's always been around. But I didn't become passionate about fight. It's a passion of mine to fight it. Because somebody that I love and I'm very, very close to became a victim to domestic abuse and violence. And it's been really hard to watch. It's been really hard to watch her children watch the abuse. I just, I have so much to say about it. What I will say is I'm glad that more people are, are being brought to, to be aware, I guess, of what's going on. If you haven't seen Made on Netflix, please watch it. It's a really good example of abuse that isn't completely outright. You don't have to be being physically hit to be being abused. And Made is a good representation of a system that is broken, that needs help. It's a good representation of a mom who's trying to break a cycle, who recognizes signs of abuse, who recognizes that it could get worse. It's just, I recommend it. If you haven't seen it, watch it. I want to give you some stats. On average, more than one in three women and one in four men just within the U.S. will be abused at some point by an intimate partner. One in 10 high school students have been abused. And according to court case files, one in four children have witnessed abuse and 40% children have experienced domestic abuse. None of this is limited, like I said, to physical violence. It comes in all shapes and sizes. It can be sexual abuse, verbal, emotional. It can look so much different than what we think it's supposed to look like. And when you're in it, it, it's hard to recognize. It's confusing. It's almost like you need somebody to tell you this is what I'm going through for them to see, hey, I'm going through that too. Oh my gosh, I'm being abused. So some signs that you may be being abused by your partner include them telling you that you never do anything right, isolating you from your friends or your family, exhibiting jealousy, keeping you from making your own decisions, 
controlling money or refusing to provide money for necessities, pressuring you into sex or sexual acts that you're uncomfortable with, pressuring you into using drugs or alcohol, intimidating you through looks, actions, or with weapons, threatening or insulting you, and destroying your things. And this is just some of many. A really good resource to identify abuse is thehotline.org. If you don't have access to a computer or you're uncomfortable visiting this website, you can call them at 1-800-799-SAFE or 1-800-799-7233, or you can text them, just text the word START to 88788, and I'll include all this information in the show notes. And if you feel like venting or you need a little more direction, I'm here to help you. Please message me. You can get a hold of me on Instagram at Reagan Tells Stories. I'll put my email in the show notes. I hope that you guys are doing well. Look out for loved ones who might be showing signs of abuse. Take care of yourselves. Thank you so much for being here. I'll see you next time.